0: So obviously want to talk decades and talk all things bad religion, but uh, first and foremost, how, how's the knee feeling? You staying away from MRI machines?
1: Yeah, I had, it was a one and done, and, they, and <laughs> they're and they like, well, you need surgery, and I just kind of drove away and said, no, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> really? I figured, so, like, this would yeah. be the year to do it. No, I'm the kind of guy where it's like, look, when I'm on a walker or a wheelchair, then I'll I'll go and do that, but if I can get around, I'll just, I'm going to go under the knife as few times as I can. So I know this is coming for real, but I'll just, I'll save it. Maybe I'll do both at the same time.
0: (laughs) Hang on as long as you can. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to go back in time uh, before we move forward, but we were like days away from bad religion in Riverside at Riverside Municipal Auditorium back on March 24th with KCAL presenting and just kind of curious, where were you guys at that point? Had the tour started yet? Were we a one-off date or kind of take me back to to the lockdown and and getting locked down?
1: Well, uh, the, you know, the first, The first date of the year was actually uh, a one-off up in San Francisco at a friend of ours club, uh, the Great American Music Hall. And much like we played the Troubadour and the Roxy doing anniversary shows, that was going to be our anniversary show for the Against the Grain album. Or the 40th year, however we were going to play it off. (laughs) The show in Riverside was part of the Alkaline Trio tour, which we were really looking forward to because that's been, honestly, it's been years in the making. We're all good friends. Between all of the bands that all of us are in and all of the projects that all of us are doing, we just couldn't seem to find the time of day to make this happen. And it finally just, you know, the stars aligned. This was going to be the beginning of a great event. This was going to be a, a tour that was really you know, special. One of those tours that you just are looking forward to. You get on the road, everybody's friends. You know, the kind of tours that you read about from, you know, the great rock bands of the 70s. You're like, I want to be on that tour.
0: Right. So, had the tour started yet? I mean, where were you? No,
1: no, we never, we never got day one. We were, like you said, we were, we were literally less than a month away from starting that tour. You know, Greg and I were on the phone every day, sort of watching this bloom. And you know, Greg's a Greg's a biologist from Cornell. He's got a PhD. He's no, he just goes, "This is worse than they're portraying, and and it's not going to get better quickly." So you know, we made the decision, look, we could go out and play, but that's, it's just, it's not fair with the knowledge that it could be harmful.
0: Makes sense. So have you done anything? I mean, obviously, aside from, we'll get into decades in a little bit, but being home so long, have you, uh, developed any new hobbies or any, what are you doing at home during all this time?
1: I, well, I, uh, my wife, that's a full-time job, as you know. Oh, yeah. Um, I've really kind of taken to playing a lot more guitar. Like like really trying to get better at the guitar. Ah. Um and and I've uh, I've really I've really enjoyed it. i you know, I, I always thought of myself as a good guitar player, but when you sit down and really assess your, your knowledge and your talents your your skill set Uh, I wasn't very good, (laughs) so I had had a lot of work to do, and and I'm I'm still not any good. But I'm I'm happier with my my progress. Are you the classic
0: bass player that played guitar and then ended up having to play bass in the band, or or were you always Uh, bass from day one?
1: No, I, I am. I am that guy. I owned a guitar. And when Greg said, "Hey, we're starting a band," I said, "Great, I've got a guitar." And he looked at me and says, "No, you have to play bass." And I, I think that you know that that dejection of oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but once once I got in there and got to playing, I realized that I I enjoyed it just as much. And and I tell everybody if someone calls you and says, "Hey, do you want to play triangle in the band?" The answer is yes. <laughs> Because if you would have said no, you know, where would you be?
0: Right, right. Always take the, the chance and see what happens and see what comes of it and you can always get out of anything, right? If it ends hey, up going listen, awry. If you're,
1: if, you're, if you're good enough at the triangle, maybe you move up to the timpani. And then, and then who knows? <laughs> the world is your
0: oyster at that point. <laughs> well, thank God for the uh, Decades live stream at the Roxy and curious preparing for this. Were there any songs that you had forgotten or a little rusty or like, what the hell was I doing on that song?
1: All of them. I, and I mean that literally. I, I, I tell people about when you're in an active touring band and every year you're playing 130 shows, it's muscle memory and it's like running a marathon. And people that have been in Bad Religion in the past would come along and say, "Hey, do you mind if I play drums on this one song?" Sure, absolutely, that'll be fun. And halfway through the song, they're winded. They're like, "I can't do this anymore." <laughs> it's like, no, like you have to stay on top of this. It's not only is it concentration, but it it's just draining. So I was wildly out of shape. And because we knew that we wanted to do these decades, were going to be, you know, we were going to get pretty deep into some cuts on the albums. We were learning songs that we hadn't played in 30 plus years. And then and then what happened for me was once we got up around 100 songs, I started forgetting all the ones that I'd learned earlier. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't my, I have no more room. Every time I learn a song, I lose a song. It was really tough.
0: Only so much space on the hard drive these days.
1: That was it. I started having to delete things. So I just said, well, I'll just delete people's phone numbers. I don't know where I live. I forgot how to drive a stick shift. The 34th president. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I got some songs in. That's what matters.
0: <laughs> any any particular one where you're like, "Damn, I I completely forgot about that song." Any any one that jumps out to you?
1: We played a song uh, on, you know, I sh- I shouldn't be giving away what what songs we played. That's I'm but there yeah, no, there were some songs cuz I want them to be surprises for people. Like I I watched the 80s with everybody else and was like, oh, I forgot that we did that. And <laughs> that surprise, that like, see, you know, having, having seen this band a lot, <laughs> seeing a song come up that really doesn't get played very often, it, it's shocking and, and, and thrilling because you know, like, this is a rarity. They really don't, we don't play these songs live very often. So we made, a, we made an effort to, to play some deep, deep, deep songs.
0: Well, not giving anything away, but can we at least touch on maybe for the, uh, during the 2010 uh, live stream, are, are you going to sneak any of the uh, songs in from the Christmas album?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> 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 I had to think about that for a minute because we talked about it, uh, but I think we just decided, I, I think that, that one of the things, we got to a point where we were at the rehearsal studio where we just started talking about how much we wanted to play every single song on every single record, And that's just, it's physically impossible with what we had set before us, which was four shows, 40 years, four decades. And so we said, well, maybe down the line, we can start looking at playing two albums in their entirety as a, as a virtual concert. And, and that was when we said, look, let's just, we can like, if, if things are still the way they are or open a little bit, but bands are still doing virtual concerts, next year then we can just do the whole christmas album next year like this <laughs> because I, this was sort of a tester to see can we even do television we're we're a stage band we're a, we're a live performance band we don't really know how to do television but we all had a great time so i think we'll continue doing more of these
0: and it almost seems like you know between all this looking backwards with the live streams and then the book in august any thought about putting together a documentary or a
1: biopic yeah we probably should have been collecting more, (laughs) more, more things to talk about over the years. We just never really thought about it. We had a manager, Elliot Roberts, who was Neil Young's manager. And one of the first things he ever told us was record everything. Just keep everything. You need everything. You'll see, you're going to need this. And we were like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) And here we are now like, I wish we had all that stuff on film. (laughs) There is talk about how do we add on to the book? This Decades wasn't really supposed to be part of the book, but it's sort of morphing into an addendum to the book. Like, well, you read about some of these songs and some of the time frames, and now we're playing them live. So it's it wasn't meant to be part of it, but it's it is. And maybe in the summer we can do something a little more in depth. I don't know. We've we've done so many things, whether it was live at the Palladium or some of the other quasi-documentary things. But maybe we'll do something a little more in depth. Why not?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And you had mentioned it. I was going to mention it later on, but you had touched on it. Your manager who managed Neil Young, and you had a great post about the uh, the one show that you opened up for Neil Young. I wonder if you could tell that story. <laughs>
1: Sometimes when you're out on the road, you end up in a in a great spot uh, at a festival, and this wasn't even a festival. This was a Neil Young headlining show at a basketball auditorium in Italy, and uh, we were really excited. We were second or third on the we were second on the bill, and uh, people really didn't like us. They really <laughs> didn't. Oh man, I understand that. It was Neil Young's fans. Two things was his sound check was with Booker T and the MGs, was the greatest Neil Young concert I've ever seen because they played everything you'd ever want to hear because they were still learning the songs for the set. After our show, this kind of raggedy hippie guy came up to me and said, like, that reminded me of Blue Cheer. And I said, I'm going to take that as a compliment because I know that's how you meant it. And then after the show, Elliot Roberts was, he was just hanging out with us just you know, shooting the breeze, and Brett said, "Oh, what did what did Neil think of us?" and and Elliot said, "Yeah, no, he didn't really like you guys at all." And so I said to Elliot, "Well, what did he say exactly?" He said, "Yeah, no, I, I don't like Bad Religion." I said, "He said our name? He said our name?" <laughs> so I was I was really excited that that like he had a he had a moment of consciousness of the band called Bad Religion no matter what his opinion was, he thought about us and that was all that mattered. <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs> it's like the hot chick in high school. Like, she knows my name. Oh, my God. Totally, totally, <laughs> totally. She
1: said hi to me. Yeah, She totally thought you were somebody else, but she still said hi to you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Wanted to uh, go back a little bit. You had touched on doing an album anniversary earlier, and I was kind of thinking, you know, if if things get back to normal at some point in in 2021, I'm sure you're going to go out and tour the Age of Unreason album, but any thought of 2022, and maybe I'm I'm looking too far ahead, but maybe doing a 20th anniversary of the process of belief?
1: Totally. I mean, it's funny with with the anniversaries, it, it seems like every year, we have 17 studio albums, so it's like having a lot of kids. <laughs> it's a lot of birthdays to remember. Right. Some albums are turning 10, some albums are turning 20, and we just started focusing on the ones that were turning 30 because it was Suffer and Against the Grain and uh, No Control, Generator, Th- those albums, because they just, they meant something in our trajectory. And I, and I have actually thought, Sat down and thought like, but the process of belief was such an important record for us uh, in the sense of getting back on epitaph and bringing Brooks in. Yeah, um, I I felt like yeah, I would I would almost want to skip forward and celebrate the twenty of the process of belief. But then again, I think what we're probably going to end up doing after after learning all these songs is just be out on the road and walk out on stage and say, tonight we're doing this, and it's going to be the entire Process of Belief album, and if you don't like it, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next night, maybe we'll play the Suffer album. Well, who knows? It, it's, everything's up in the air right now because we've been talking so much about getting out on the road. It, it just feels like whenever we get back out there, I think we're all just going to want to play for hours. Like We just want to play everything all, all night long.
0: I'm, I'm curious about that time, too, and, and Brooks Wackerman coming in. I've heard all these rumors about, like, one take and done, and you knew he was the man. And curious, especially you being the bassist. How did you lock in with him right away?
1: I'm I'm going to be very, very, very brutally honest. I had to go home and relearn everything. I had to up my game. Man, that that guy was going to embarrass me horribly because he <laughs> is so good, and his ability to, to just – to play things that, as a bass player, I didn't understand what he was doing, and I would get lost in songs that I'd been playing forever, and I was like, how can I get lost? I know this song. And it wasn't that the song had changed. He was playing it in such a way that I was I was basically counting wrong. That's just because he is such a natural, he, his ability to turn a beat around in the middle of a verse and rephrase it, and then come back in before the chorus with some drum fill that doesn't even make sense, and you would think is humanly impossible (laughs) I had to just go home and and just get a metronome and go okay I I have to go back to the beginning you know everything that I've learned I have to throw it away and start where I can play with Brooks because he's just phenomenal
0: yeah a beast behind it I imagine just staring at him the whole time and
1: yeah there was a lot of times where I forgot to play because I was watching him (laughs) going what (laughs) what (laughs)
0: crazy to see him in Avenged Sevenfold these days do you guys still keep in touch
1: yeah, all the time. I mean, we're all neighbors. We're Long Beach, Huntington Beach. We're, we're all right in here. So we all see each other all the time. And, you know, obviously right now everything's a little more difficult, but. Sure. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Perusing through your Instagram. One other thing I wanted to bring up, a couple, couple Instagram things I noticed, but uh, an old 80s era show with you singing a black flag tune. I mean, lead singing aspirations deep down inside. I, yeah, when I was
1: five. <laughs> and I'm learning now that lead singers start out in a band when they're 14 or 15, and they're learning their craft at the same time we're learning our craft. And and being a lead singer is, it's hard. It is really hard. There's definitely a magic to it. And being gifted with a natural voice, a talent that, you know, that, that comes out just naturally isn't, isn't really my thing. I could learn how to be a better singer, but it's just, i feel like I'm wasting my time. I look back at that like 15, 16-year-old us and watch Greg singing and say how how impressed I am with him kind of owning what he was doing on stage knowing how nervous we all were about playing in front of people or on television. Like if I had started being a singer when I was 15 it would be a different story, but I was a bass player, so I sort of dedicated my life to that mode.
0: Yeah, I feel like singing's one of those things like like you said, you can practice and get better at it, but you really need to be born with it.
1: Well, you need to be born with a tone. Because Greg's a scientist and we all talk about sciencey things on the road. We've talked about things like the shape of the head that makes the tone of your voice, or people with a barrel chest that have a larger lung capacity. We've we've talked about all these things that make people's voices sound the way that they do and i'm the blender head i'm i'm not i'm not meant to sing <laughs> You're the prototypical bass type
0: body and head
1: i have a bass type body i have long fingers and arms <laughs>
0: one other thing I, I wanted to touch on with uh, your instagram and you posted the top 10 hardcore old school songs and i don't want to fight about it or anything but i did want to dig deep into one of your picks motorhead ace of spades yep killer song. Curious over the years and you guys being an LA band and the Sunset Strip and Lemmy living at the Rainbow, any interactions with the man?
1: All the time. All the time. Greg and I met Lemmy in 1980, I'm going to say three, eighty-two or three. And I mean, so 17, 18 years old, gave him our first album and he was getting on a bus and I gave him an album and I realized how silly that was. <laughs> but Honestly, he never forgot us, and when we finally grew to the point where we started playing bigger festivals in Europe, we started showing up on Motorhead stages at festivals, and he remembered us. He's "Oh, you were the two guys in Hollywood that gave me that record. I'm like, wow, how do you remember that? Wow. And so... You know, we started just kind of seeing him more. Hey, Lemmy, what's up? We'll just sit and talk. And he would just tell us great stories. I ran into him at the Rainbow a few times. I worked security at the Cat House for a number of years. So I I kind of was in part of that world. And so I was hanging out at the Rainbow. I remember one time I was sitting at the Rainbow in between Lemmy and John Entwistle. And I was like, I'm not supposed to be here at all. This (laughs) This is not where I'm supposed to be. That's like
0: bass heaven. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, speaking of, of bass and, and Lemmy, so much is made about his lifestyle and, and all that, but talk about Lemmy as a bassist.
1: You know, he was just brutal. He was just a, a very uh, overdriven bass player. He's a great songwriter. Like back when he was in Hawkwind and even before that, a lot of songs that he wrote became hits for other bands. He just was a, he was a brutal bass player. More like just playing lead guitar the whole time. Yeah. Like, it's weird when you say, like, a phenomenal bass player like Flea or, or, you know, whatever. I don't don't want to go down that path. But Lemmy was his own guy. And that's the truth. Like, much like Peter Hook and Joy Division, Lemmy was definitely his. He just, I am me and no one is me. No one will ever be me. So, yeah, you're right.
0: It all comes down to that right hand, right? And that tone?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean his his Rickenbacker Marshall combination and you know his guitars were so customized that, like when people go like how do I get that tone it's like you kind of you can't. Right. A it's him playing and B the stuff that he's made the way that he's made his equipment it's no you're you're not you're
0: just not. <laughs> I appreciate all the time, Jay. Last couple of things for you. I wanted to take it back to the uh, IE a little bit since we're an in Inland Empire radio station. I was trying to think back. I'm, I'm sure there's been some other shows along the years, but the one that jumped out to me for Bad Religion was Fall Fest 2005 at University of Redlands. I think like Eve Six was on the bill and Pepper and Cottonmouth Kings. I'm curious if you have any memories from that show or. Any Inland Empire shows or maybe the barn back at UC
1: Riverside back in the day? Well, I remember the Redlands show. I don't remember the show. I remember going to Redlands. And I remember the stage was like in the quad. And it was a, mm-hmm. one of those like, I feel like I'm back at high school. <laughs> I kind of like that. That was fun. But I don't remember the show very well. You know, one of the memories that I had at the, at the Glass House Ah, okay. That's close, right?
0: Yeah, that's Pomona. That's the IE. That's that's the edge
1: of the IE. We're we're it's the it's the edge. Uh, the reason I I I think about that is because I remember we were playing a show. Well, we had a show booked, and our booking agent called me and said, "Hey, do you remember Caius?" And I said, "Yeah, those guys are cool. Caius, he's high desert guys or desert guys, right?" And he's, and he's all, well, uh, Josh has a new band, Queens of the Stone Age. And I'm like, what? Queens of the Stone Age. I'm like, it's called what? <laughs> Queens of the Stone Age. Like, this would be their first show, and they just want to open for you guys. And, kind of, and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I kind of want to see what he's up to. And I remember at the, at the Glass House, they came in and we hanging out, and they, and they set up and play. And I just was like, these guys are so good. <laughs> it was like, I was kind of like, oh, this is the future of rock right here. It's One of those moments where, like, you see something, and it's and it's totally thrilling but kind of a bummer cuz you're like oh they're so good i i just remember that show so well i remember watching them and i don't want to say i was envious but that's how it felt like where you're just like oh i just i want to be part of this <laughs> i know grohl played
0: all the uh the drums on the studio albums but did he play that show if it was like their first no, show no
1: no i'm not sure who was drumming? I don't even remember really at that at that time who was in the band other than Josh. Joey Castillo was in the band for a number of years, the drummer Joey Castillo. Mm-hmm. And I played with him in Wasted Youth. Oh, wow. And the reason I'm saying I don't remember Joey being there was because we're good friends, and I would have remembered kind of hanging out and talking with him, and I don't. So I was like, Joey, I don't think he was there yet. This I think this was such an early incarnation of that band. I know Nick was... On base, but I don't know him, so I was like, oh, "Okay, well, he's crazy or like you know, super, super crazy cool guy." In in the forty years of being in bad religion, the bands that I've seen sort of come up and then just go on to bigger and better things is is all of them pretty much. <laughs> there really aren't many bands that we didn't catch in their early stages, and there aren't many bands still going, you know, from the 80s. So Social D is, I think, you know, one that's up there. But there's there's a lot of bands going, but not in that style. But the big bands like the Pearl Jams and the Foo Fighters and the Queens, having seen those guys, you know, when they were coming up and, and really seeing why they're where they are now. You just knew it. You just see them and go, God, these guys are so, so good.
0: A little music game I want to play with you and wrapping up, uh, talking about other bands that went on to big things and stuff like that. A little music game I like to play, putting bands in categories and making you kind of pick your favorite out of the bunch. And going back to the, the 90s and one of the bands you had mentioned, you mentioned Pearl Jam. There's a grouping of bands that I like to call the Flannel Five. <laughs> So you can see where I'm going with this, but curious oh, totally. curious, which one resonated with you the most. If you had to pick just one out of the bunch, and I'll, I'll give you the five, it would be... Mud per- honey. No, hold on. <laughs> Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden.
1: For what it was worth, I, I think Soundgarden, they were the avant-garde side of that. And, and I know that probably sounds weird. Nirvana was really just a, a really good funk band. And Pearl Jam is a great rock band. I don't know what Alice and Chains and Lane Staley I'm not sure what that was. <laughs> that may have been pure grunge. Stone Temple Pilots, they don't really they're not part of that. They're not from Seattle. Yeah, I I think I'd I think I'd give that to a, to Soundgarden.
0: Just because of, of Chris and the technicality or what was it
1: exactly? <laughs> no, because because they weren't anything else, if that makes sense. Like they didn't fall into a category. If you if you really dig into Soundgarden you you just find the most the most unique voicings. You know, Kim Thayil and, and Matt those they were just they were writing some phenomenal songs that, that no one else was even close to touching. They're just the most unique and I and I think they represented that Seattle idea the best.
0: I appreciate the time, Jay. Thank you so much. Oh you bet, Mike. Happy holidays. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Dude, you rock. Thank you so much for checking out the entire podcast. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and follow me on the socials at MikeZ967. Follow me, I'll follow you back. Lastly, don't miss the show. Saturday nights at 11 p.m. Wired in the Empire on 96.7 KCAL Rocks in Southern California. Always streaming online at KCALFM.com. Adios.